Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, The Blast of the Ram's Horn, Subversive Acts of Christian Joy, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 21st, 2006. Morris Berman is at it again. In a sequel to his book, The Twilight of American Culture, published in the year 2000, the cultural historian has just published another book entitled Dark Ages America, The Final Phase of Empire. The two titles speak for themselves. According to Berman, government corruption and incompetence, corporate greed, moral malaise, and the politics of fear all indicate that a malignant cancer is ravaging our culture. Experts might nuance or qualify Berman's Jerry Mead, but when I watch the mindlessness, vulgarity, and violence on television, and when I read in Time magazine that a third of our children do not graduate from high school, or when I contemplate a world where half of the population lives on $2 a day or less, I find it hard to disagree with him. Since he offers no cure for the disease, but only a diagnosis of the symptoms, Berman's conclusions lend themselves to a mindset of pessimism. But as the Bible so often does, Psalm 98 for this week offers a counterintuitive piece of advice. Don't go there. However accurate Berman's cultural diagnosis might be, However low the sociological trends and the opinion polls sink, don't yield to the spirit of despair. Instead, choose the most radical of all political options today, the subversive act of genuine joy. Listen to Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and all that is in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. The sicknesses of our world might provoke fear and insecurity, but the psalmist encourages us to resist those temptations. He invites each person, every nation, in all the ends of the earth to know the joy of being known and loved by Israel's God. Joy can be an ambiguous term. Many people link it with happiness, health, success, fame, 
wealth, pleasure, fun, or good fortune. In that sense of the word, joy is derivative. It's attached to and dependent upon some external source. Joy of that sort can exude a sense of smugness, entitlement, narcissism, and even self-pity in the absence of desired objects. Such joy seldom lasts for long or is genuinely fulfilling, for in fact it creates its own set of needs that are rarely satisfied. We all know, for example, privileged people who enjoy the most fortunate of personal circumstances, but who are never content and always unhappy. And conversely, we know people who possess very little, but nevertheless radiate equanimity and gladness. And think about it. Which is sadder, that one could be so easily fulfilled by so very little? A new house, a bigger car, a better job. Or that you readily miss so much, the blast of the ram's horn or the shout from the rooftop. What an upside-down state of affairs, wrote the philosopher Boethius in the 6th century, when a person who is a divine by his gift of reason thinks his excellence depends on the possession of lifeless bric-a-brac. Joy, then, is more elusive, more subtle, and more nuanced than happiness, pleasure, or good fortune. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis describes joy as, quote, an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world, end quote. Whereas we can manipulate circumstances to our own advantage, to obtain what we think will bring happiness, or expend great efforts in pleasure-seeking, joy is entirely gratuitous. You cannot earn it, buy it, or deserve it. It is a divine gift to receive, rather than a selfish goal to pursue. The opposite of joy is not sadness or sorrow, but anxiety. Jesus encouraged his followers to do not worry about your life. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Consider the joy of the birds in their morning songs, or the flowers in their springtime glory, he said. If the Lord of the universe clothes creation with such extravagance, then we can rejoice in his love regardless of our circumstances. In the Gospel for this week, in John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says that we rest in his love so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In his poem, The Revival, the Welsh poet and physician Henry Vaughan, who lived from 1621 to 1695, challenges us to open our drowsy eyes to experience what he calls the drops and dews of future bliss. Listen to Henry Vaughan's poem, The Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. 
The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops in dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in expressed joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt, oh, here the lilies of his love appear. Living joyfully because of God's lavish love is, in fact, the greatest honor that we can give Almighty God, said the mystic Juliana of Norwich. No matter how bleak the forecasts of cultural historians like Morris Berman, with joy we can expect his love to appear even in the dust and dirt of our lives. And now for further reflection. When have you been not merely happy but joyful and why? What are some common substitutes for joy? How might we prepare ourselves to receive joy and be joyful people? Fourth, is it possible to be joyful even in times of difficulty and sadness? And for further reflection, see the autobiography of C.S. Lewis, Surprised by Joy, or the classic work from the 6th century by Boethius called The Consolation of Philosophy. For books this week, I review a book by George Packer called Assassin's Gate, America in Iraq. New York, Farrer, Strauss, and Giraud, 2005, 467 pages. Named as one of the ten most notable books of 2005 by the New York Times, many critics consider Assassin's Gate the single best book on the Iraq War. George Packer, a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine, is one of the few so-called liberal hawks who supported the war in Iraq. To give my position a label, he writes, I belong to the tiny, insignificant camp of ambivalently pro-war liberals who supported a war by about the same margin that the voting public had supported Al Gore. When Packer wrote his book, after most people agreed that the Bush administration had badly bungled both the rationale and the execution of the war, Packer still believed that the Iraqi cause was what he called winnable. That single comment he has remarked in later reviews has returned to haunt him. Packer's narrative begins with the unfinished business of Desert Storm in 1991. Recall that Iran and Iraq fought a war from 1980 to 1988 that killed a million people. He traces the key personalities in the neoconservative movement that by March of 2002, a full year before America invaded Iraq, had led Bush to declare in an Oval Office meeting that he intended to remove Saddam. From then on, the so-called facts were made to fit that decision. But just why we went to war remains a mystery. 
Richard Haas, director of policy planning at the State Department under Colin Powell, for example, said he will go to his grave not knowing the answer to that question. Beyond the complexities of history, culture, and politics, Packer excels at communicating the reality of the war from the vantage points of a wide variety of ordinary stakeholders, the three million Iraqis living in exile. CPA staffer Drew Erdman, who had a Harvard PhD in history. Physicians at a Baghdad psychiatric hospital and at the morgue. An American captain who realized that what his soldiers really needed to do was to fix the local sewer system. A 22-year-old private who was killed in the complex responses of his father back home. A young woman student at Baghdad University. Citizens in Kirkuk, including the competing claims of Kurds, Arabs, and Turks. And finally, daily life at the coalition's provisional authority, especially the tragic disconnect between headquarters there and everyday realities in Iraq. Packer documents the infighting between the defense and state departments, the administration's disdain for any help from experts, their willful blindness, and the flagrant neglect of plans to rebuild Iraq. The war, as he reminds us, was not inevitable. And unfortunately, our poisonous political climate here in America makes it very difficult to discuss Iraq beyond the purpose of proving yourself right. Packer shines because he constantly returns to the nightmare that has befallen ordinary Iraqi people. So, although he supported the war as a liberal hawk, at the end of 500 pages he concludes, quote, I came to believe that those in positions of highest responsibility for Iraq showed a carelessness about human life that amounted to criminal negligence, end quote. George Packer, Assassin's Gate, America in Iraq. For film this week, I review a Canadian film entitled St. Ralph from the year 2004. This film won several festival awards and is fine as some Friday night fluff, but at the end of the night, it didn't work for me. St. Ralph wavers between the inspirational, the cute, and some serious coming-of-age issues. Trying to do all three at once, however, fails. Ralph Walker is a likable troublemaker in the ninth grade at an oppressive Catholic boarding school. He cheats, lies, smokes, curses, underachieves, and enjoys his raging hormones. His father died in the war. His mother lies deathly sick in a coma, and if he is expelled from the school, he's orphaned. He learns in his religion class that performing a miracle requires faith, prayer, and purity, and so he sets out to run the Boston Marathon in order to effect a miracle for his dying mother. Subplots with a girlfriend and a teacher priest who just happens to have a, been a marathoner as a young man add very little. I didn't find St. Ralph even remotely believable, nor did I appreciate that Catholicism was presented in the worst possible light. The headmaster is a cardboard character who, yes, is a sick tyrant. 
Ralph has several visitations from God who appears to him in the form of Santa Claus. You can watch to see if St. Ralph gets the miracle of a marathon victory and whether this redounds to his mother's healing. Just don't expect too much from this mediocre film. St. Ralph from the year 2004. And finally this week, for poetry, we have posted a f poem by the British poet Philip Larkin, who lived from 1922 to 1985. The title of the poem is called The Mower. The mower stalled twice. Kneeling, I found a hedgehog jammed up against the blades. Killed. It had been in the long grass. I had seen it before, and even fed it once. Now I had mauled its unobtrusive world unmendably. Burial was no help. Next morning I got up, and it did not. The first day after a death, the new absence is always the same. We should be careful of each other. We should be kind while there is still time. The Mower by Philip Larkin Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May 21st, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.